Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening and welcome to the LSE for this hybrid event. My name is Kirsten Sainbruch. I'm a British Academy Global Professor and Distinguished Policy Fellow at the International Inequalities Institute here at the LSE. And I am very pleased to be, be here tonight to welcome Dr. Denise Igan, Dr. Luis da Silva, Pereira da Silva, and Dr. Benoit Mojon. To both our online audience and our audience here, thank you so much for coming and for being with us today. To start with, Denise Igan is Head of Macroeconomic Analysis at the Bank for International Settlements. She has held several positions at the International Monetary Fund, such as the Chief of the Systemic Issues Division in the Research Department and is co-editor of the IMF Research Perspectives. Luis Pereira da Silva is the Deputy General Manager of the Bank for International Settlements, and prior to that, he was the Deputy Governor at the Central Bank of Brazil and served as Deputy Finance Minister at the Ministry of Finance and as Chief Economist for the Ministry of Budget and Planning. Benoit Mourjean is Head of Economic Analysis at the Bank for International Settlements, and before joining the BIS, he worked at the Bank of France. He was Head of the Monetary Policy Division from 2008 to 2011, then became Director of Monetary and Financial Studies and a member of the Eurosystem Monetary Policy Committee. In this event, our speakers will be discussing how central banks can effectively contribute to a more equitable society by deploying the necessary tools to deliver on their mandated objectives of price and economic stability. They will highlight the importance of taking inequality into account when designing and implementing fiscal and monetary policy. For Twitter users tonight, the hashtag for our event is hashtag LSEUKEconomy. This event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast later on, subject to no technical hitches. As usual, there will be a chance for you to ask questions after the event, both here in the audience and online via the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. So please let us know your name and affiliation before you ask your question. And um, bear in mind that we are particularly keen to hear from students and alumni um, during this event. So for those of you here in the theatre, I'll let you know when we start with questions and um, you can just raise your hand, we'll bring you a microphone. And for the online audience, again, please provide your name and affiliation, and um, Peter will uh, take your questions. We're going to try and mix and match questions from online and theatre audiences. But for now, I'm going to hand over to Denis. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for the introduction. Thank you for the organization. It's really great to be here. Uh, my remarks today are based on joint work with my former colleagues at the IMF, so the usual disclaimer applies. The views are mine, not of the IMF or of the BIS. So let me start with a very simple organ, uh, observation. And just one second. 
I'm having difficulty moving to the next slide. Maybe maybe the upper screen, the, the, the other, this one. So the simple observation, uh, public interest in inequality has increased tremendously after the uh, global financial crisis in 2008. So the audience is young, uh, you may not remember, but that was the GFC 2008-2009. And uh, when you look at the Google searches for inequality, that's the red line, you see that it was uh, pretty flat for a long time but then it started increasing very rapidly. And this 2013 spike that you see there is uh, the publication of Thomas Piketty's uh, Capital in the 21st Century, which made a, quite a bit of uh, impression in public psyche. Uh, but more recently, if you follow the red line and you see then there's another spike uh, with the pandemic and then yet another spike uh, with the surge of inflation in the second half of 2021. At the same time that uh, interest in inequality was rising, we also see an, uh, an increase in interest in, in central banks, and that's the blue line. Right? You see the fluctuations, but overall there's a trend that the public is more and more interested in what central banks do, who they are. And that, of course, also coincides with very aggressive monetary policy easing in response to the GFC. And this was mostly, as you see on the right-hand side, first the interest rate, um, declines that happened right after. But what you don't see there, but I'm sure you're very well aware of, are also the unconventional monetary policy actions that many central banks had to resort to uh, because of the, the damage that the GFC has done and because they hit the zero lower bound. So this weak and fragile recovery that followed the GFC also made monetary policy normalization very difficult and interest rates uh, stayed low for long and lower for longer uh, for an extended period. And just when we were trying to get off to the new monetary policy normalization path, COVID came, and there you see again the, the blues dipping, uh, which meant that uh, another round of monetary policy easing happened because of COVID and what it could do to the economy. Then in a remarkable reversal, uh, the past year has seen one of the most globally synchronized and one of the most aggressive monetary policy tightening uh, episodes that uh, we are aware of in decades. So this coincidence of the extraordinary monetary policy uh, cycle and inequality hitting headlines at the same time gave rise to a natural association uh, in, in uh, the public mind between central banks and inequality. Now, what I'm going to show you next is that Notwithstanding the rising public awareness, in increasing inequality is not a new phenomenon. Uh, when you look at the advanced economies in particular, you see that it has been trending up since at least the 1980s. The picture is a little bit mixed for, for EMEs, but definitely for advanced economies, increasing inequality has been there for, for decades. And at the same time, we saw global real interest rates uh, being on a decline. And the neutral rate, the R star central bankers keep talking about, um, is not observable, obviously, and estimation is subject to uh, a lot of uncertainty. But whatever estimate you can come up with also shows a declining trend over the past few decades. And this coincides with the decreasing trend growth in productivity in advanced economies as well. 
So what I'm talking about, putting these two, uh, two together, the inequality trend and the interest rate trend, the reason is that both of these long-term trends are actually driven by similar structural factors. And those are factors such as financial globalization, automation, and demographics. All these push inequality up and uh, interest rates down at the same time. And as we know, these are evolving in the current environment, and it's difficult to say what the pandemic and the war uh, is, is going to bring on that front. Now, important to remember, however, is that these forces are beyond the reach of monetary policy. Central bankers cannot directly affect those, those um, dynamics. But that doesn't mean that they can ignore them, quite the opposite. They need to accommodate the implications of these forces for inequality and for interest rates in taking decisions uh, to fulfill their mandates. And by fulfilling their mandates, they can support more equitable societies. So in the remainder of the presentation, I will basically discuss the channels uh, through which monetary policy can have distributional effects. Uh, my focus is going to be on, on uh, business cycle frequencies, short-term effects, and unexpected monetary policy actions, or monetary policy shocks, as we would call them. I will not cover issues related to R-star, what the uh, neutral rate is doing, as well as the relationship between uh, the, the neutral rate and inequality and the feedback effects between the two. These are beyond uh, what, what I'm able to talk about today. And my focus will also be on advanced economies and uh, within country inequality rather than across countries. Of course, the conceptual channels and the evidence I'm going to talk about here have also implications beyond advanced economies and uh, they can they carry also some lessons for emerging markets. So let me tell you about the um, very stylus summary of the channels uh, through which monetary policy can have uh, implications for the distribution of income, wealth, and consumption in the economy. At the core is heterogeneity. Households are heterogeneous across a variety of dimensions. So that, that could be income and wealth. Obviously, we're talking about distribution here, but households are also different in terms of their age, their skill levels, uh, in which sector they are employed, uh, their marginal propensity to consume, how patient they are, what their preferences are, how, uh, how well they are connected with the financial sector or how much access they have. So there are many, many dimensions we can talk about. But income and wealth at the end of the day are closely correlated with many of the dimensions that you can think of. Uh, just to give two simple examples, skill level is correlated with income uh, and wealth itself is correlated with, with age because it evolves through the um, life cycle of an individual. So you can think in that sense the income and wealth dimensions as the main channels that reflect many, many dimensions of heterogeneity. And under these two main headings, the literature have identi has identified four blocks that really matter. And let's start with the income part. And there we have households that have very different primary sources of income. Some of these sources may be more responsive to monetary policy than others. And I will talk in more detail on that. Households also have different levels of income, needless to say. And their wages and employment prospects, those in the bottom versus those in the top, can be very, very different. 
in terms of also their sense through the business cycles and to monetary policy actions. On the wealth side, households are different in terms of what they owe as well as what they own. And different assets and different liabilities are affected differently by changes in interest rates. And finally, households have different levels of wealth and changes in interest rates affect savers and borrowers in different ways. So as a result, we have different exposures of households based on their income and, and wealth status. And uh, the net effect of a monetary policy action on a given household is going to be a combination of these different channels. And it's important to remember that some of these channels can offset each other. They don't always work in the same direction. Now, what I talked about is only the partial equilibrium effects. On impact, something happens to interest rates, and through these channels, you see different impacts on different households. Now then, there's the general equilibrium impact because agents in the economy make decisions, how much they want to consume, how much they need to borrow, how much they can borrow. There are decisions on, on employment, decisions on how much to pay those uh, employees. And uh, then there's the international side of things, and there's the current and financial account that, uh, that move um, based on what monetary policy in different countries are doing. At the end of the day, all these effects and feedbacks that happen will also be affecting how different households are affected by monetary policy actions in their country. Now, those are um, compared to the first part that I talked about. The general equilibrium effects take longer time, as you can imagine. They take longer to be realized. Now, I will demonstrate the potential impact on different households, first looking at exposure and then relying on more modeling and empirical techniques. But just to add to the heterogeneity and the complexity of the channels, there are also sources of heterogeneous responses that come in the general equilibrium channel. And that's because when you're deciding to consume and how much to borrow, there are constrained households and unconstrained households. So that will matter. On employment and labor, skilled versus unskilled labor, that's going to make a difference. And on the current and financial account, tradable versus non-tradable sectors, again, is going to make a difference. Now, as I mentioned, exposure measures and then models and empirical studies. Now, what do we know from the data? Households drive their income uh, basically from labor earnings, transfers, and capital gains. Right? And what you see here for the US um, in particular, we're showing, but it's a similar picture in other countries as well, capital income is especially concentrated and it uh, belongs to the top 10% of the income distribution. Households at the bottom receive most of their income from wages. That's labor uh, wages, that's where it comes from. And workers at the end, low end and middle of the earnings distribution also face higher unemployment risk. What I mean by that, what you see on the right-hand side is comparing the unemployment rates for uh, different workers at the different parts of the earnings distribution. And you see that, um, but I'm not showing here, but uh, take my word for it, those in the bottom 20% of the earnings distribution experience higher unemployment rates after the GFC. And as uh, monetary policy easing kicked in and the economy started recovering between 2012 and 2016, you see also the decline in the bottom 20 was much larger. So what that means is that by stimulating demand and reducing unemployment, monetary policy benefits all, but it just 
happens to benefit the earners in the lower end of the distribution more because they are subject to higher unemployment volatility. Now, turning on to the, um, the, the next channel, the balance sheet channels. On the asset side, the wealth of the top 10% in the US is dominated by equity and bonds. That's where you see the purple and yellow bars. And it's about 62% of, of the total. When you look at the EU, that's a different picture. So the, the share of um, top 10, uh, share of equity and bonds in the top 10% of the distribution in the EU is only 23%. Instead, they hold, uh, the, the rich in the EU hold most of their assets in real estate. That's also true for the bottom and middle in both regions, both in the US and in the EU. Now, if we turn to the liability side, not surprisingly, given the, the portfolios of, of uh, households, you see that the liabilities are again dominated by borrowing against real estate. And that's uh, both the blue and the, and the pink uh, bars you see there. Now, that means by changing that service on mortgages, central banks can have an impact on household disposable incomes. But as you can see, it's not equal across the earnings distribution again. And uh, one more point uh, there, you're gonna see the bottom 20 in terms of liabilities differs quite a bit between the US and, and the uh, European Union. In the US, these are the poor uh, and they have relatively less mortgage debt. Home ownership rates are lower, but the characteristics uh, of the rest of their liabilities, so the loans, the yellow block that you see there is student and payday loans or loans of subprime quality when they are mortgage loans or car loans, which means that uh, the bottom 20 tends to be uh, more vulnerable to cyclical changes, both in labor demand and in risk appetite because of the composition of these liabilities. Now let me turn to, well, what does it all mean? Why did I show you all these pictures? Now, we do micro simulations. What does that mean is that basically we have the distribution of households and we shock them with some hypothetical scenario, right? And we start with the interest rate full of 100 basis uh, points and look at the gains and losses that would imply across the distribution. And what you see is that it is pretty much in line with, uh, with uh, an individual's life cycle. The poor, Again, the bottom 20, as well as the younger middle-class households, those are the pink bars, uh, age 20 to 55, uh, tend to benefit from a negative interest rate shock because they tend to be borrowers. The wealthy and middle-income older households with little debt but large fixed income investments, such as bank savings, they are disadvantaged when interest rates fall. Right? But at the same time, when interest rate decline, as you can imagine, the wealthy will benefit from the changes in asset prices because they tend to own those assets. So that brings me to the second exercise that we do. Let's look at the mechanical impact of a 10% increase in different asset prices, in equities, in bonds, in housing. Here what we see is that higher equity prices favor wealthier households. So that's coming all the yellow bars that you see at the top of the distribution, when equity prices go up, the wealthy households are the ones, because they own them, uh, are the ones benefiting. Higher house prices are a little bit more equitable, 
So across the distribution, you do also see that uh, higher house prices favor the bottom and the middle part of the wealth distribution. And especially in, in uh, the EU, you see the benefits accruing to the median household, those in the middle. But you need to keep in mind that even tiny changes in the uh, lower end of the distribution is going to make a big difference, right? So this is not saying $100 gain on the top and $100 gain in the bottom. But because the $100 gain in the bottom is going to make a big difference because their wealth, their income is much lower, it will look like a big gain here. Now, bond prices, the blue bars, we don't see much of an action. So it's mostly coming from equity and house prices. This is just a simple way to, to show you how one needs to put together all the ch channels in order to get a full picture. It's just not changing one and then saying that's the impact, right? And how do we do that? We can put all the channels that I talked about together uh, using a dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model with heterogeneous agents, and we can work with the US in this case. Um, it can be done for other countries as well. Obviously, I'm not going to go over the details of the model, but you can take my word for it. It's state of art, uh, the latest in, in the literature, uh, and captures most, obviously not all, of the, the distributional effects, the channels that I talked about. Now, what we do in this exercise is that we say, okay, let's consider a monetary policy loosening shock and see what happens. Income inequality rises because the rich now benefiting from higher asset returns. And that's what you see in the left chart, right? The total response, the red line is going up, income inequality is higher. You look at wealth inequality, that's the middle panel, and it barely moves. If, when it does move, it is going up, so again, and this is on purpose, we are showing it all in the same scale, so you can see, even if the directions might be going one way, the magnitudes are, are gonna wipe, wipe each other out. So wealth inequality do rise, but it's marginal, and the amounts are really, really tiny. And you may ask, well, if income inequality is increasing so much, why wealth inequality is not moving as much? The answer, again, is about the distribution. Because the average household, um, when you look across, average household holds about assets worth three times their income. But at the top, that asset-to-income ratio is more than 12. When you look into the bottom, it's essentially zero. Right? So what that means is that wealth at the bottom is very, very responsive to any increase in income. Right? But on the top, it's not sensitive at all. That's why you're seeing the income inequality increasing, but wealth inequality barely moving. Consumption inequality, and that's the right side, that is much more important for um, central bankers from a welfare perspective. Ultimately, it's not what you own if you're not consuming it and enjoying it, right? That's where you drive your uh, utility from. And we see that consumption inequality actually falls. And that's because the poor consume disproportionately out of higher wages. And here, monetary policy loosening is helping with employment, is helping with increased output, and uh, wages are increasing, and that's helping with consumption inequality. Now, given the limitations of what I showed you, you know, as good as models, they still have their caveats. So what we do is let's take it to the data. 
that's the last thing uh, we can do. And uh, we use, again, US data, but similar studies, as I'm going to show next, um, arrive in similar conclusions. With the US data from 1980 to 2016, you can look at both conventional and unconventional monetary policy shocks. And what you see is that monetary policy expansion, as you would expect, uh, increases employment and output. And as a result of these channels, it has very small effects on both income and consumption inequality, if any. There's, you know, statistically speaking, there is nothing really significant here. Now, let's put it all together, those three uh, sets of um, approaches that the literature has, has uh, employed, micro-simulations, modeling, and empirical analysis, different uh, countries, different times, different techniques. The literature is still evolving, but uh, let me uh, tell you that a critical reading of it um, would suggest basically three robust findings. First is that the magnitude of the net distribu distribution effect of monetary policy is actually very small. Even when studies find statistically significant results, the economic magnitudes are, are very, very small. Second, uh, monetary policy loosening may actually decrease, not increase, inequality of income and consumption in the medium term. But this effect, again, varies quite a bit across jurisdictions. That's where you see different counter names in the chart, and uh, there's, a, there's a wealth formation going on there. That said, in the medium term, even though monetary policy could be helpful, in the short term, wealth and perhaps income inequality may increase. Now, before I move on, uh, two additional points from reading the literature. Many cross-country studies you may come across is going to report uh, um, an association between monetary policy loosening and increased income inequality. But what is actually causing higher inequality is not monetary policy, but it's the worsening of economic conditions. And this is something that uh, Benoit and Louis are going to talk more about. And from a statistical or econometric point of view, once you remove this endogeneity, and uh, just focus on the, on the systematic components of monetary policy, then the association goes away, right? And the second thing to take away is that country cases vary. And I think it's not gonna come as a surprise. Countries are different and uh, there are different structures, labor market institutions, capital markets function differently, financial institutions function different, policies are different. So of course, the results are gonna differ. Uh, let me just point out Japan Many studies uh, looking at Japan uh, come up with either no effect whatsoever or the opposite effect that's happening. And then digging a little bit deeper, you realize that that could be explained actually by the labor market institutions in Japan, the relative um, low rate of participation and relatively lower flexibility compared to other countries. So monetary policy's transmission through the employment and output channels is not as strong and uh, to be able to offset other, um, other measures. Now, what is the implication? What's the takeaway for central bankers? Basically saying that monetary policy should remain focused on macroeconomic stability. And why is that? Because if we burden monetary policy with objectives that it's not designed to achieve, we may end up undermining its effectiveness. And in general, that's an undesirable thing to do, but 
given the knowledge uh, we have on the distributional effects of monetary policy, it seems to suggest that central banks should focus on, on macroeconomic stabilization. That's, again, not to say that policymakers can or should ignore uh, altogether uh, distribution issues when they conduct monetary policy. But within their existing policy frameworks, central banks should actually factor in heterogeneity among households, among firms, uh, because these affect monetary policy transmission. Again, something uh, Benoit and Louis will, will tell you more about. The second implication is that monetary policy cannot be the only game in town. Distribution outcomes can be improved if there's concern that monetary policy is having uh, societally unacceptable distributional effects, then this could be improved when other policies actually support counter-cyclical uh, monetary policy. And the exercise that we do, we consider consumption uh, and, and uh, consumption inequality with or without fiscal transfers. And we do see that uh, if you do have fiscal transfers, they can, uh, they can undo any distributional effect monetary policy might have. Then you might ask, well, what type of policies we're talking about here? What can help monetary policy achieve its objectives while improving distribution outcomes? Well, the simple answer is that by policies designed for this very purpose. Just the four headings I'm, I'm going to mention there is the redistributive fiscal policies, uh, not to only cyclical effects, but the trend increase in inequality. This is one of the most effective ways to reduce inequality of disposable incomes and consumption. And the picture you have there is showing that countries already do this, and they can do even better. Second, addressing skill gaps by uh, enacting uh, active labor market policies, training people, helping them find jobs, so that you know unemployment spells are not long, finding a job is easier, and finding better paying jobs is easier. Those can all reduce disparities in earnings. Remember the earnings distribution and how the bottom is, is more sensitive to what's happening in the economy and more sensitive to unemployment risk. Third, improving access to financial services would do the same for income composition and wealth. If the poor have access to um, bank accounts, if they can save, if they can participate in different asset classes, then you will not have as much disparities. And finally, the broader structural reforms um, to enhance flexibility in the economy, in labor markets, and remove constraints to mobility can also go a long way um, in, in achieving these. So let me end with a quote from Andy Haldane. I'm sure he's no stranger in this crowd. In 2018, he wrote, when it comes to evidence on the distributional impact of monetary policy, there are wide gaps in understanding and even wider gaps in perception. So more analysis and clear communication by central banks need to focus on filling these gaps in perception and by doing so, it would allow monetary policy again to, rem to remain focused on what it does best. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. 
Now, back to the event. Thank you, Houston. Uh, Thank you for, uh, for hosting us on this discussion about uh, several angles through which uh, we uh, suggest that uh, central banks should consider uh, inequality, heterogeneity uh, in their roles as policymakers using uh, monetary policy. So Denise talked about some of the channels of uh, transmission and um, this work that we did with Benoit <clears throat> and other colleagues uh, shows that uh, actually um, the role of central banks essentially to ensure price and financial stability in a society should definitely also consider the uh, effects of inequality on the effectiveness of what they are trying to do, essentially stabilization uh, uh, policies. And we are going to go a step further, show you that indeed there could be uh, effects of persistence of inequality through the business cycle. That, uh, yeah. That are important enough so that uh, uh, if the persistent uh, is not addressed, then uh, recessions get deeper, inequality persists, and therefore the work of uh, uh, improving welfare in societies that after all central banks should also uh, be taken care of uh, is, uh, is not addressed. So again, the disclaimer uh, applies. Nope. Curious. Yeah. There. Yeah. And no. where is the okay? So, guys, um, I think this uh, <clears throat> is simply a uh, a reminder that you don't need to be a. Uh, uh, recall that there is an obviously very extensive uh, and old literature on, uh, on, uh, on inequality, particularly because we realize that since the mid-80s, inequality has, uh, has increased. There are many angles, uh, both in terms of analytical work, but also policy work that has addressed uh, this uh, uh, ways in which we see the uh, reasons for rising inequality since the mid-80s. And the work has essentially addressed the issues uh, that are more structural in nature. Uh, a slow-moving process, mostly due to technological progress, mostly due to the uh, collateral effects of uh, globalization. And uh, even the BIS uh, has addressed this in uh, one of uh, the... Uh, uh, annual reports that we produced a couple of years ago. And therefore, because of this uh, more structural nature uh, of uh, the uh, rise in inequality, most of the policies to address them, uh, particularly in the books that I just pictured here, have been focusing on more of the structural effects, uh, the structural policies to uh, reduce inequality, education, training programs, 
the ways in which uh, uh, you can upgrade skills and so on uh, and, uh, and so forth. Uh, yeah, definitely I don't know. Okay, the click is here. Now, even if, uh, uh, even if, you, uh, if you think of a more structural nature of, of policies, and these are, I'm sure, uh, two, uh, uh, two books that uh, you might have uh, been going through here in, in your classes. Even if you think of the more structural natures of these policies, basically what is um, inside the, the black rectangle, minimum wages, uh, savings, incentives, social insurance, uh, uh, income policy, some of the uh, 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 elements that Denise addressed in terms of the challenge of transmission of stabilization policies, okay, through wealth and uh, capital income and through uh, uh, wages earned income. Uh, the uh, most recent research, example, the, uh, the last uh, handbook on income uh, uh, distribution by uh, Bourguignon and, uh, and Atkinson said, look, even if you focus just on the structural, you need also to think a bit outside the box. The outside the box policies are the red triangles that you see around these, these well-known structural policies to address inequality. For example, can we change the direction of technical change? Can we think of uh, guaranteed public employment? Uh, can we think of uh, minimum universal income policies, for example, right? Can we think of um, um, capital uh, endowments that be, be distributed across the board? Now, you, you, can, you can immediately see this, that we are not here in the domain of, of monetary policy. We're here much more in the domain of uh, fiscal policies. But indeed, they, these are outside the traditional uh, features that we consider when we look at uh, uh, stru classical structural policies. And another, another way that um, uh, we, we thought about this, uh, this was many years ago, and at least one, one, one guy in the audience remembers that, uh, uh, is, uh, well, if you want to capture, and Denise mentioned that as well, uh, the uh, heterogeneity of agents, the way they sort of receive these macro variables and it affects their income and their wealth, for example. One way to model this is to think of a sort of uh, use the, the wealth of data that you have in household data surveys, for example, and try to sort of do a top to bottom approach where you shock your basic big data of household uh, uh, heterogeneity with, um, let's say, the, the macro variables that people are usually subject to. For example, inflation, for example, interest rates, for example, the way in which public expenditure is distributed across uh, various agents. So this modeling, uh, this modeling strategy is one way to, at the same time, understand that structural policies will change the uh, agents and you can analyze and simulate that with uh, the heterogeneity of, uh, of household data sets, which are available everywhere in every, in every country. And you use a sort of uh, a top general equilibrium model that will then input these uh, linkages variables 
and inject them into your household surveys and try to see how the distribution of income and wealth, particularly income, changes in your household survey. So this is just a top-down approach, and we're not talking here either of especially monetary policy or fiscal policy. These are macro variables that you inject into your household data surveys, and you see what exactly makes the changes that it makes to your household survey. Now, as I think we were amply told, and you know that, the central banks not only have been looking at inequality and heterogeneity, but if you look at the speeches of all these central bankers, including ourselves, there's been a growing awareness that this is an important topic for the profession. And so what we are going to be showing you here tonight is an angle that is not structural. Structural policies are very important, but we are going to be focusing on something that we think has been a little bit overlooked by the more classical literature on inequality, which is the cyclical factors that drive inequality and could make inequality persist for a long period of time, and therefore create a vicious cycle that we call hysteresis of inequality. And we identified four new evidence of that. First of all, that there is this concept of inequality persistence of hysteresis. They tend to, of course, rise in downturns, in cyclical downturns of the economy. And actually, even if you have some countervailing policies, this increase in inequality tend to persist. The second evidence that we would like to show here is that inequality, if you are in a more unequal country, recessions there tend to be deeper, therefore more damageable, do more damage for poor people. The third is that there is a trend that we identified since the mid-80s that is making fiscal policies, you know, the traditional structural policies that are supposed to address structural factors of inequality. Well, since the mid-80s, these policies have become less and less redistributive, and therefore they've been less and less countercyclical, and therefore they've been sort of leaving the burden of stabilization more on the hands of monetary policy and central banks. This was what we referred to as being the only game in town. So the traditional sort of tools that policymakers had to address inequality, fiscal policies, were more and more left, or less and less effective in addressing inequality, and therefore monetary policy has to take a bigger role. And finally, I think this is the sort of the big message that we want to pass here, is that central banks should not be sort of worried about inequality just purely on moral grounds. I mean, although, of course, there is a moral dimension to that. But there is also a concern that if you are indeed in a more unequal society, the stabilization effectiveness of your monetary policy, your main tool to stabilize the economy, becomes weaker and weaker. So if you take these four 
factors together, there is a case for seriously, in addition to, of course, and considering the mandates of central banks to stabilize inflation and ensure financial stability, when you do that, you should take also into consideration heterogeneity, inequality, and the distribution of income in your society. And with that, uh, I leave the floor to, to Benoit, and uh, I show you that you have to click exactly on this little <laughs> triangle here, otherwise. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Luis. So uh, uh, before, before I start, I just want to, to mention very briefly, I'm super happy to be here tonight. Uh, I'm a former student of uh, LSE. Uh, the father of a former student of LSE, and, uh, and the cherry on the cake is uh, uh, another daughter of mine is here tonight, and uh, it's the first time uh, that uh, I present uh, my work in front of one of my uh, daughters. I have three daughters. <laughs> uh, so uh, um, um, I will uh, basically uh, uh, tell you where we are. So inequality has increased a lot over the last 40 years. That's uh, within country inequality has increased a lot over the last 40 years. And so the conjecture that we make in this, uh, in, in this book that we did with Luis and, and, and co-authors is that um, the failure of all the policies which are meant to reduce income inequality may be due to neglecting one aspect which is very critical on um, the occurrence of inequality and the increase of uh, within country inequality and this is a cyclical dimension of uh, income inequality. So, uh, and then what we do in the book is that we provide those four facts uh, that show that indeed there is a very strong relationship, a two-way uh, relationship between uh, the business cycle and, um, uh, and the income inequality. Uh, so I will go relatively fast uh, because some of those facts are known to you. Uh, some, some are new, but we, we, we explain them. And so in this way, we will keep some time for uh, Q&A uh, in the session. Okay, so um, let me uh, stress very briefly the outlines just to, to remind you trends in inequality, then the facts on inequality and recessions that we uncover in this book, uh, inequality and fiscal policy, and then inequality and monetary policy. Okay, so that's within country income inequality. This has increased a lot. That's what we see in the, in, in the middle uh, panel. It doesn't mean that, you know, if you take a, a global perspective, um, uh, it doesn't mean to say that poverty uh, has increased. Actually, if you take a global perspective, poverty has declined, okay, over the last 40 years. Uh, but uh, this went together with an increase of within country income inequality, whether you take a Gini coefficient or you take uh, the top 10% share of income. So that's a share of income that goes to the 10% richest in, in society. And there you see in red for advanced economies in the middle panel, or in blue for uh, emerging markets uh, in the, 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 the blue lines in the, in the middle panel, that they've increased a lot. And we will focus on income inequality, which has increased a lot, because actually, if you look at wealth inequality over time for the same period, wealth inequality has not increased so much. Okay, and the main reason why wealth inequality has not increased is because um, most of um, 
Households' wealth is held in the form of housing, and the price of housing has increased a lot. Uh, and typically, 50% of the population or more would own their house, and therefore they benefited from this increase in the value of houses. And it's not the case that wealth inequality has increased over the last 40 years. So I'm not talking about the top 1% or the top 0.1% that Piketty stresses, okay, where, you know, you know, Jeff Bezos is much richer, that's a fact, okay, but we, we, we're talking about uh, the 10% richest here. Okay, so um, let me move on to um, uh, directly the, the, the first fact. So the econometric experiments that we did, so here we use uh, uh, statistics, and we're gonna, we, we, we were able to, to uh, isolate uh, 100 and uh, to, to point to 182 recessions across 70 countries with data which start in, the, in, in 1980. So we can look at what happens to income inequality in the years that follow these 182 recessions. And what we show here is that on average across these 182 recessions, income inequality here we take the share that of income that goes to the 10% richest, it tends to increase in the years that follow uh, the recession, and you see that it increases persistently. The share that goes to the bottom 50% uh, 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 income level in the, in, the, in the population, this decreases, but you see that the confidence interval is, is much wider, so uh, it's, it's harder to estimate the, the share, but at least in terms of the share that goes to the 10% richest, on average across 182 recessions, this has increased, okay? And so that's uh, uh, the first fact that we, we stress is that following recessions, you have an increase in income inequality which does not get reverted. It is persistent, and that's what we call inequality hysteresis. Let me go to fact number two. Uh, we have a, a large sample of recessions and we're gonna be able to study uh, the depths of recession by comparing countries uh, and, and we compare countries with different levels of income inequality. That's our second fact actually, uh, which I display here in two forms. Uh, you have two samples of countries on the left, a sample of 91 countries uh, and uh, if we focus on larger economies, another sample of 29 uh, countries, either advanced economies or e EMEs. And there you have the response of consumption in, the, in, in those countries um, when there's a recession. And so the deeper, the, the, the more negative the response of consumption, the deeper the recession. And you see here that if you're a country with a low level of income inequality, so you're a yellow dot, say uh, Sweden or Finland, uh, the response of consumption is much smaller in the event of a recession than if you are a country with a high level of income inequality, say uh, the US, for instance, or the UK, uh, where income inequality is pretty high as well. Uh, the second type of experiment that we do is that we're able to compare the response of uh, consumption in US states because we have data on income distribution state by state, and we have 50 states in the US. So there we can see the state's uh, um, consumption response following the 2008 recession, the great financial crisis. So on the right, you have New York, okay, Connecticut, uh, 
which are states with a lot of financial industry. And on the left, you have agricultural states such, such as Arkansas, uh, Iowa, Nevada, uh, for instance. And so you see there that the more, the more income inequality, the more negative the response of consumption as well. So on these two very different samples, sample of countries, sample of states in the US, you have this effect of uh, inequality on the depths of recessions. Let me move to the third result. So there, actually, what we, uh, what we, see, in the, what we see in the data is that over the last uh, 10 years, income tax has become less progressive okay, than it was in the past. This is what you, you see, the tax progressivity, the red line on the left, has been declining on average across uh, advanced economies. And on the right, what you see is that the replacement ratio of uh, unemployment insurance has become less generous over time. Here we compare where it is in 2019, uh, the, the red lines, to where it was in 2001, the blue line. And you see that the red line is below, which means that uh, you get a smaller share of your, of your income when you are unemployed in 2019 than in 2001. And what we show actually through regressions, I don't have time to, 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 sh to show them, I just uh, uh, report here the, the scatter plots of, uh, of the data, is that if you, are, if you have a tax progressivity which is above the median of countries, actually you have a slope here which is bigger. And what is this slope? Actually this slope is a response of primary balance or um, government's revenues, if you prefer, to the business cycle. So it means that when the economy goes very, uh, very fast, the income of the government or the tax receipts of the government, of the government is going to be higher, okay? Uh, and the primary balance, so the difference between what the government collects and the, what the government spends, is going to respond more to output if I have a more progressive tax system on the right than if I have a less progressive tax system on the left. And this is actually one, what I just described is actually what we call the counter-cyclical property or the stabilization property of a fiscal system. Is it the case that the deficit declines more or the surplus, the primary surplus increases more when the economy is booming? Okay. And you see there that it depends on tax progressivity. Another way to show that is uh, here for different levels of tax progressivity, you have this uh, slope coefficient which is higher and higher. Now, if I move to unemployment insurance, here it's not only that the slope is higher, it's that the slope changes sign, okay? So to the right, uh, if I have a more generous quote-unquote unemployment uh, insurance, I will have more countercyclical fiscal policies uh, while uh, if I have uh, a below median replacement ratio of the income of unemployed, actually I get then uh, even a, a negative response. So uh, fiscal policy which is not countercyclical. And we show that uh, this is more due to expansions than uh, uh, recessions, but I, I don't have time to, uh, to dwell on this. So basically the, the takeaway on the fiscal policy, okay, our third, third set of, of results, and the study is online, and the, the slides, I guess, will be posted if you want to, to dwell uh, uh, more into those slides uh, after, the, after the presentation. So what to take away is that 
when I put in place a less, uh, um, uh, less tax progressivity or I reform the labor markets uh, to have less generous unemployment insurance, a side effect of those reforms is that I will have more macroeconomic instability because my fiscal policy is going to be less effective uh, or the, what we call the automatic stabilizers of my fiscal policy are going to be less effective. A side effect for us as central bankers is that it increases the burden of stabilization for, uh, for central banks through monetary policy. But uh, let me get to the, the, the last result before I conclude uh, on inequality and monetary policy. There, uh, what we do is that we look again at the, how, how much monetary policy can stimulate uh, consumption uh, for different levels of uh, income inequality. This is a, a sample of countries uh, that we are using. So we are uh, making this model across countries with different levels of income inequality. And actually, the ability of the central bank to stimulate output, okay, and uh, to, to stabilize the economy by uh, stimulating output is going to be higher for a lighter pink, uh, uh, lighter pink uh, uh, dots here, which corresponds to a low, lower level of income inequality, the Sweden and Finland of this world, than for the darker uh, pink uh, dots. Again, we could do the same using U.S. states. So in a way, this is empirically cleaner because across the U.S. states, you have a single monetary policy, which is decided by the Fed and uh, which impact all the states of the U.S. And there again, you see that the lighter pink, which corresponds to lower level of uh, income inequality, the effects of monetary policy is bigger. Uh, uh, the effect of monetary policy on consumption is bigger than in the uh, darker uh, pink dots. So let me wrap up. So uh, these conjectures that we are uh, that, that, that we that motivate these uh, this, uh, empirical investigations is that um, um, the cyclical dimension of income inequality has been neglected, uh, and 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 actually we show that there are very important cyclical dimensions of income inequality. It is persistent following recessions, what we call inequality hysteresis. Countries with higher level of inequality have deeper recessions. They experience deeper recessions. Less redistribution implies that fiscal policy are less counter-cyclical, uh, uh, and, and this, as a side effect, will raise the burden of stabilization by monetary policy, which are conducted by central banks. And four, uh, countries with higher inequality, they have less effective monetary policy. So with these four facts, uh, I, we hope that you know, we convince you that indeed one place to look at uh, in terms of uh, curbing the, this increase and possibly reverting this increase in income inequality, which undermines co the cohesion of, uh, of societies, is to look more closely at uh, when they arise through the cycle and design policies that would be uh, uh, more um, uh, adapted to these cyclical patterns that we see in uh, uh, the emergence and persistence of income inequality. Thank you very much.
Thank you so much. That was so interesting. I love the way the three presentations were so coherent. Okay, so we are now going to open the floor to questions from the audience here. Depending on how many there are, we might have to group some together. Um, anybody would like to start? Yes, do you have the first hand up? Mine stand up. Um, hi, uh, thanks very much for that. My name's uh, Ewan McGahey from King's College London Law School, uh, also used to be here at the LSE. Um, uh, from a legal perspective, the, the mandate of the central banks is for price stability, as you know. Um, it, it's a little bit different in the European Central Bank, in the Fed, um, that the, the, the UK, uh, the Bank of England has to um, follow the government's economic policy and uh, for, for growth and employment. Uh, the European Central Bank is more focused on price stability alone. Uh, the Fed is supposed to balance with uh, employment. Um, uh, and I've been thinking about, you know, whether price stability can include uh, inequality. And, and I, 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 I see you're sort of looking at the empirical impacts. Um, and I wonder if you, you could offer any thoughts about the extent to which inequality undermines price stability, because then you can say, from a legal perspective, that it's, if, if the bank has a duty, central bank has a duty to safeguard price stability, but inequality undermines price stability, then uh, you, you can uh, say that the banks have to uh, pay regard to inequality. Just one example or two examples um, is if uh, inequality goes up, then rich people are buying lots more houses. Uh, that puts pressure on house prices rising. Um, house prices rising is obviously not price stability, it's price instability. Um, also just uh, inequality of incomes. I mean, you can say that the price for labor uh, is growing more unequal with rocketing CEO pay. Uh, and maybe you could say that that's price instability as well. And I'd be very, very interested to hear any thoughts you have. Thank you. In the interest of time, let's group questions together. Any other one? Yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, hi. Is, uh, on a similar note, uh, Stefano from... Um, um, you both started the presentation, actually. Mandate. Thank you. This is better. Um, but I fail to see how the two presentation would support either conclusion. In one case, the main message was central banks are not uh, doing anything too bad on inequality. And in the first case, is that inequality is making the job of central banks much worse and much harder. But surely in the second case, it will be easier to say, let the government do some of this changing in taxation. And in the first case, I, don't, I fail to see how um, the connection with the central bank mandate is strong. So the last point on the conclusion, um, well, knowing that the central bank is not doing something actively bad doesn't mean that it shouldn't be trying to do something good. Thank you. This is, uh, there is a third. Hi, my name is Rahul. I'm a civil servant, but I'm here in independent capacity. Uh, I was wondering if you could maybe expand a bit more on the comment made about endogeneity in the analysis. And I was thinking about the chart where you talked about Denmark and Sweden having low inequality, and so you know monetary stabilization works more effectively in a recession, but 
isn't that where you have your endogeneity problem because they have low inequality because, or rather they have, they have less declines in consumption during recessions because their incomes don't fall mu that much because their fiscal policy is more redistributive. <coughs> so you're, you've got a sort of a, uh, sort of a correlation versus causation issue in the analysis. Uh, <clears throat> well, maybe I can start with the first uh, two questions that I think are interrelated. Um, th this is not an advocacy for a change in, in mandate, right? This is a evidence that uh, you have objective factors that makes the work of central banks in stabilizing prices and uh, uh, ensuring financial stability more, more difficult. And therefore, I think that the argument that if you want to go into the policy conclusion side of it is that obviously uh, you need to pay attention with the coordination of other instruments in the array of policies that you have at hand. And particularly Benoit was showing you the way in which uh, uh, fiscal policy has been less redistributive and less effective in addressing the issues that compound inequality uh, rather than sort of making the case that uh, you should uh, immediately think of uh, an evolution uh, of mandates, which is a discussion that society has to have. You have many other tools that are at the disposal of the regulator and central banks that can address some of the issues that you mentioned, for example, macroprudential policies. You can certainly have, uh, in uh, addition to the uh, operations of monetary policy, if you're thinking of uh, the uh, possibility of uh, bubbles, uh, financial bubbles in, in your economy, of in addition to uh, the action of monetary policy, using uh, what we were mentioning, a more redistributive fiscal policy, on the one hand, coordination with the fiscal activity, uh, the fiscal uh, authority, the treasury, but at the same time coordination with uh, the regulator in the economy which sort of is responsible for precisely through a number of uh, macroprudential tools and microprudential tools to avoid uh, the development of the type of risks that uh, you rightly uh, mentioned. So uh, the, 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 the issues that we are pointing out here uh, are precisely issues that should alert policymakers about the benefits, the social welfare benefits of coordination uh, of, of policies, both on the macroprudential side, both on the uh, fiscal uh, and um, um, <clears throat> fiscal and treasury and treasury side. You want to complement the needs of Renaud? Yeah, let me perhaps clarify on, on the mandate question. So what, what we are saying, I don't see a contradiction because what we're saying is that the developments in, in inequality are primarily driven by forces that are outside uh, the, what, what central banks can do, right? So after that realization, whether the mandate can or try to handle inequality is kind of a secondary question, I guess. And yes, most of the evidence that I showed is that when central banks are trying to do what they are trying to do, what they are uh, mandated to do, we don't have definitive answer, no smoking gun, then they are doing harm, right? Which is important for central bankers. 
Now, whether they can do good, and it should be part of their mandate, as Louis said, it's part of society to decide. But from a technical point of view, we need to also ask the question of whether they can do something meaningful. And that brings us back to the structural factors. Because it's also important in signing the mandate, and I don't need to remind to this audience, right? It needs to be something that the agency can influence, can do something so that they can be accountable for it. And I don't think we have enough evidence that central banks single-handedly can deliver on inequality. But let me stop here. Yes, so let me reemphasize what is the most uncontroversial uh, uh, aspect of our results is that if central banks want to do a good job uh, to deliver on their mandate, um, understanding better the business cycle and seeing how the business cycle is influenced by income inequality uh, is, uh, uh, is certainly useful for them. Okay, so I think that's one of the messages that we have, and this one is completely, completely uncontroversial. And I think we also uh, uh, clarified in the, in the two presentations that we, we, we strongly believe that fiscal policy can do better, and fiscal policy may need to be adapted to business cycle circumstances where inequality arises. And if fiscal policy progresses in this dimension, it may make the mission of central bank easier to deliver on. But whatever fiscal policy does, central banks have to deliver on their mission, on their mandate, and uh, in, in a majority of countries, it is price stability and uh, financial stability. In terms of the question on endogeneity, uh, you know, the full-blown, uh, full uh, uh, absolutely clear-cut, uh, pure uh, exogenous uh, factors is difficult to, is difficult to observe. So uh, here, you know, we, we are using the cross-section of, uh, of country situation and, you know, a first description of the, of the data in those circumstances is showing that there is a difference across countries uh, in terms of the depths of recessions, in terms of the strengths of um, the effects of monetary policy for different levels of, uh, of income inequality. It may be that indeed in those countries, there's less of an income decline uh, uh, because of uh, more redistribution. But I think this is making our point. So I'm not sure I see a, a, a contradiction here. It's a, it's a good point. Thank you so much. Um, Peter, are you going to read us questions from the uh, online group? So we have a question from Rafi Azari. Uh, how can these findings concerning the importance of fiscal policy be applied in the EU context where there is a single currency without the fiscal union? The country-specific differences also make fiscal union a contentious subject, uh, northern versus southern Europe, for instance. If this does support a fiscal union in the EU, how can this be implemented with varying differences at the country level without adversely impacting the single currency? And then I'll just read out another one from... I'm, I'm not sure I fully understood the question, actually. Uh, so so, so um, are, we, are we pushing for uh, a fiscal union in, in, in the EU? Is that... Yeah, I think it's asking, yeah, how, yeah, how would a fiscal union be implemented in the EU context? 
Well, I mean, the, the, the union is progressing uh, slowly. Uh, the fiscal union is progressing slowly, uh, but progressing. There is a next generation EU package where uh, several of the countries uh, in the euro area will uh, benefit uh, from massive uh, investment in the future, uh, in infrastructure, in uh, the green transition. Um, so there is uh, actually, if you, you would have asked me uh, five years ago whether I expected to ever see um, a joint uh, liabilities of the member states of the monetary union, I, I would not have expected that, really, uh, that uh, uh, as a response to COVID, this development uh, has been very much a breakthrough, in my view. It's still in dimension a relatively small one, but still it's a breakthrough. So there may be progress towards uh, a fiscal union, uh, further progress towards a fiscal union in the EU. However, I'm not completely certain this was a question uh, I was asked. Um, so the next question is from uh, Youssef Izik. Uh, is the independence of the central banks important given the evidence presented by Denise? specifically in regard to the role that banks need to assume in terms of consequences on equity and societal benefits? I can't read that. That's actually part of the reason that uh, central banks need to communicate about inequality and what it means for them and where it fits in, in fulfilling their, their mandate. Because I started talking about the natural association in the public debate, right? You see two things going in the same direction, you're like thinking, okay, yeah, there must be a causal relation, and we know that that's not always true. And when it's not addressed through, you know, public relations, clear communication, that, that type of association in people's minds, in public mind, then becomes a threat to central bank independence because people start questioning why is the central bank not doing good? Why are they doing actually bad things, right? And then comes all the old related um, moves to, to, uh, for, for central banks to do something different and, and whatnot. So in that context as well, I, I would say this communication filling in the gap, both in terms of understanding better what it means for central banks, but also uh, filling the gap in the perception and uh, communicating to the public what it means, particularly in the counterfactual. If central banks don't do what they are mandated to do in the right way, what are the implications for inequality? That's the counterfactual that they need to communicate, uh, and it's no easy job. Uh, perhaps to, just to add uh, one, one important point. I think we all realize that uh, the uh, institutional feature that we have built so far of uh, independent central banks capable of uh, deciding with their policies and particularly uh, the monetary policy uh, on uh, their two mandates of usually price and financial stability are essential and are very important. F for example, we all know today that uh, the first enemy is to fight uh, inflation. Uh, we know that inflation is the uh, worst enemy of, uh, of the poor in any, in any country. And therefore to have uh, an agent that is capable of addressing this as its primary objective is an essential feature of uh, uh, institutions that uh, have been built uh, by experience, particularly now 
not only in advanced economies, but also in many, many developing countries and uh, emerging markets. I think the point that we're making here is that in addition to this, the strength of this institutional feature, um, the uh, setup of uh, policy responses to recessions, to policy responses to uh, crisis should also consider the features that we had shown you in terms of uh, the uh, uh, welfare uh, enhancing or improvement whether other supportive policies would help central banks precisely to achieve uh, their goals. I think this is the sort of the way in which uh, we should sort of think of, uh, of the argument of uh, what sort of uh, objectives you should set and what sort of uh, complements uh, central banks could have uh, in addressing their primary objective. You could, you could, for example, say, produce the same type of debate and discussion about another very important topic of today's, which is uh, climate change, the way in which uh, central banks should uh, sort of uh, address this type of issue as well, right? It's beyond the, it's different from inequality, but in terms of the, the sort of the, the argument of what should you be concerned about this type of uh, uh, global externality is also an issue where uh, coordination of policies and looking at uh, other, other agents' objectives and how to uh, complement your own policies with uh, coordination is um, is a, a uh, increasingly uh, uh, de uh, present debate in the life of uh, central banks. Last question, or was that okay? Anybody else in the room? Last chance. Chico. Thank you, Francisco Ferreira from the International Inequalities Institute. Thanks a lot for the, the great presentation. I have one question to Denise and one to, to Benoit. I invite Louise's comments on either of them. Uh, to Denise, so I may have missed this and misunderstood it for various reasons, including that my hearing in this room is, is terrible. But the sense I got was that you said in, in a number of your re first results, that although inequality is bad for various things, you know, it makes fiscal policy less effective, it makes monetary policy less effective, it, you know, should inform it, but the actual effect of monetary policy on inequality has not been terrible in the sense that, if I got that right, interest rate increases raised income inequality and it then fell back over time. Uh, consumption inequality fell with either the same thing, yeah. And then contractionary, th and therefore expansionary monetary policy presumably would have the opposite e effect. That's, that's expansionary policy. That's hmm? Expansionary policy increases. Expansionary policy. Increase in so expansionary policy, expansionary monetary policy increases income inequality and decreases consumption inequality. Ah, okay, it's very good. It increases income inequality. And, but not wealth, right? No, not wealth. No result. It does, but it's very small in terms of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay, the question I was going to ask, the income, I got the income, the sign of the income thing wrong, but the question I was going to ask about wealth stands, which is, if I got it right, most of your data went up until around 2016, 2017. More or so, yeah. And so, you know, bearing in mind Lucas' critique and all of those different things, should we extrapolate those conclusions to the post-COVID era when there was this massive quantitative easing 
um, you know, which in my mind at least, but I haven't done any analysis, might have led to an asset price inflation which was beneficial to those who held assets and, you know, and, and, and the effects on asset prices in this last boom. I would have expected it to have been inequality increasing. So I don't know whether you've had a chance to look at that data. Mm -hmm. I've seen some literature that seems to go in that direction, but, but I may be wrong. So just inviting your comments on, on that, on whether you would extrapolate these results to the last two years or so of the pandemic. And quickly, sorry, I don't want to talk too long, but quickly to, to, to Benoit. So you answered, I think, an earlier question about identification and, and exogeneity by saying, well, look, you know, there's not a lot we can do, so we're, we're looking at a cross-session. But um, I is there at least one of those ways to control, to sort of separate the impulse response from trends? Because, you know, there are trends, right, in inequality over time. So if you're saying this thing is persistent, um, it rises in recession is then persistent. The least you have to do, I guess, is to sort of separate out the impulse response from the trend. So just a comment on that. Yeah, very, very briefly, uh, uh, we, we do separate uh, the, the trend. So uh, what we show is uh, what goes on in addition to the trend and the years of, uh, uh, for that follows recessions are years where um, uh, you know, it's only a small uh, part of the sample. Right? It's, uh, I think, less than 15% of the observations are, are recessions. Uh, um, and so uh, we have a time fixed effect, and uh, so we control, we control for, the, for, for the trend. Uh, but uh, I leave the last word to Denise. These are exactly the questions we, we asked ourselves. And uh, Benoit and I were talking earlier, and he was asking, you know, when did you start this analysis, uh, this paper? It was before COVID. And our concerns were much more about the lower for longer, and our star keeps going down, and Monterey Paulson needs to normalize how. Those were the questions uh, in our minds, and lo and behold, the pandemic comes and it changes uh, the, the whole calculation. In the paper, we are much more careful in saying, let's not extrapolate, because we really don't know how the pandemic changed things. Uh, but uh, maybe just a couple of words. One analysis that we have done was looking at what happens to inequality after, recession, uh, after pandemics, and uh, of course, we need to also uh, buy with a grain of salt, uh, but purely econometric analysis, similar to what, what uh, Benoit and Luis have done, basically shows after pandemics, inequality does increase. And we have heard a lot of stories, a lot of anecdotes uh, about that too. So there's that perspective and what macroeconomic policy can do in that environment. And uh, going into the, that, that point, the second uh, thing I would say is, we didn't know on March 2020, um, I've been in many rooms still all, and then shifting to WebEx and, and, and whatnot, but literally brainstorming and trying to understand what, what can we do as central bankers, as, as fiscal policymakers, as financial policymakers. And this unknownness of un unusual thing and trying to understand how it's affecting the economy, supply, is the supply shock, is the demand shock, is an uncertainty shock. So in that environment, I think uh, I would argue rightfully, many policymakers have taken the insurance approach and did the most they can do, not knowing what was 
on the other side. So, but that's definitely a question that, that we need to study and, uh, well, hopefully not the next pandemic, but next big shock, we will have some lessons. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the questions. Thank you for the answers. And thank you so much for attending this event tonight. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.